Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 37, 1 Samuel, chapters 22 and 23. A terrible disaster is about to befall Israel. The people are none the wiser. King Saul has determined that the priesthood set apart to serve Jehovah is to be exterminated. That means that the word of God as well as all of the vital ritual observances for cleansing, for atonement, these will no longer be available to them. I've stated from the beginning of our study on Samuel that King Saul was not merely a poor choice for a king. He doesn't just represent a a failed king. King Saul is the anti-king. He's everything that humans desire and God hates in a government leader. King Saul was real. What we read about him is true. It happened. But he's also a type, a shadow. He he established a pattern for the great Antichrist who was about to appear in the present era. King Saul was among the most beautiful of men. He was a head and shoulders taller than any man of his tribe, perhaps in all of Israel. Handsome, strong, charismatic, with a natural bent for knowing how to manipulate and control. He quickly abandoned the ways of his creator for the ways of the human evil inclination in the spiritual dark side. You know, it was to be expected that as long as King Saul had no rival and he didn't feel threatened that his actions, while self-serving, wouldn't be terribly radical. It wouldn't seem suspicious to the Israelites at large. Saul's behavior and his decisions weren't any different than the behavior and decisions of all the neighboring nations, all the neighboring governments. But as soon as David arrived on the scene, Shaul knew his time was near. His reign was threatened. And so his true nature was suddenly exposed. This is generally what we read about the coming Antichrist who will rise to international prominence, receive the adulation of the world, and apparently even of the greatest portion of the institutional church. All having been deceived because... They have gone so long without the light of God's truth being taught to them. But it is when Yeshua's messengers and then Yeshua himself makes their appearance that all hell breaks loose. As Satan's eternal rival is now finally here to challenge him. The rhetorical question is a timeless one. How? How is how is it? How can it be that Satan, whose scriptures tell us at one time lived in heaven, in close proximity to God, 
and is the most beautiful and intelligent of all heavenly creatures, how could he not only rebel against his master and creator, but honestly believe he could defeat God? How could Satan not understand to his core that because of his choice to try and place himself on God's throne, that the only possible ending for him was eternal destruction? Well, we see that same scenario being played out in 1 Samuel as King Saul is fully aware that God has not only removed the throne of Israel from him, but has also completely and permanently abandoned him. King Saul is now God's eternal enemy. Did Saul honestly believe that he could defeat God's will and hang on to his earthly throne? Did Saul seriously think he could kill God's anointed one, David, in order to keep David from assuming his God-ordained destiny as king over God's kingdom? See, the problem with Satan and the problem with Saul and the problem with all leaders of all governments who think that they can supplant God's justice and truth and morality with their own is a very deep-seated spiritual irrationality. For the world, especially for the elitist intelligentsia, these human leaders seem to be nearly infallible, undefeatable. Men to be followed without question, if not outright worshipped. So for us as believers to, to think of Satan as, as irrational is hard to do when we see what he's accomplished over the last 6,000 years. It's not as hard for us, though, to see Saul as irrational. So perhaps that's why such an extensive account of his life and his reign have been preserved for us in the Bible. It's so we can know what signs to look for, how to prepare when that coming evil world leader springs on to the scene. Therefore, just as King Saul decided that to eradicate opposition, he had to eradicate the priesthood. So will the Antichrist decide that to eradicate opposition, he must eradicate the priesthood of believers. Let's reread a portion of 1 Samuel 22. Turn your Bibles to page 323 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. 1 Samuel 22. We'll start reading from verse 16. King Saul... Well, wait a minute. 16 I said, didn't I? I apologize. Okay. It starts on page 324, I'm sorry. But the king said, You must die and your father's whole family. And then the king told the guard standing around him, Go around and kill the priests of Adonai, because they're siding with David, because they knew he was escaping, but they didn't tell me. 
But the king's servants refused to lift their hands against the priests of Adonai. So the king said to Doeg, You go around and kill the priest. And Doeg the Edomite went around and fell on the priest. And that day he killed 85 persons wearing linen ritual vests. He also attacked Nob, the city of the priests, with the sword. And he put to the sword both men, women, children, babies, cattle, donkeys, sheep. One of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Achitub, named Aviatar, escaped and he fled to David. And Aviatar told David that Shaul had killed the Kohanim of Adonai. And David said to Aviatar, I knew it. That day when Dweg the Edomite was there, I knew he'd tell Saul. I caused the death of every person in your father's family. Now stay with me. Don't be afraid, because the one who is seeking my life seeks yours too. But you'll be safe with me. King Saul has ordered the end of the Levitical priesthood. He tries to get some of his Benjamite government council to do the dirty job. But as corrupted as they are, even they aren't willing to go that far. So Saul turns to a foreigner, to an Edomite, to accomplish his evil will. Doeg is anxious. He's willing. So he begins with killing all 85 priests and then in Machiavellian style murders all their families. To send a message to anyone who might think to rise up and oppose the king, even the infant children of the Levite priests and their livestock are destroyed. Now we covered this last week, but I want to reiterate that because the Bible presents us with progressive patterns, we ought to look closely not just at Saul, but also his main henchman, Doeg. Doeg was a descendant of Edom, Esau. And the Bible has much to say about the character and the destiny of Edom. It's therefore not surprising to learn that when David's descendant Yeshua was born 1,000 years after King Saul, another Edomite sought to kill those who would follow him. That Edomite was King Herod. I propose to you that it certainly seems possible, if not probable, that the so-called false prophet, the main henchman that will work for the coming Antichrist, will be of Edomite descent. I'm not called to be a prophecy teacher. But occasionally, there's just no bypassing it. And, And so I want to take a brief detour today to examine the major Bible prophecy concerning Edom. Because it's entirely possible that some of us may still be living when this prophecy occurs in all of its fullness. I want you to turn your Bibles to the book of Obadiah. This book's a mere 21 verses, so we're going to read it all. Obadiah, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, is page 742. The book of Obadiah. This is the vision of Ovadiah, Obadiah. Here is what Adonai Elohim says about Edom, 
as a messenger was being sent among the nations saying, come on, let's attack her. We heard this message from Adonai. I am making you the least of all nations. You will be beneath contempt. Your proud heart has deceived you. You whose homes are in caves in the cliffs, who live on the heights and say to yourselves, who can bring me down to the ground? If you make your nest as high as an eagle's, even if you place it among the stars, I will bring you down from there, says Adonai. If thieves were to come to you, or if robbers by night, oh, how destroyed you are, wouldn't they stop when they'd stolen enough? If grape pickers came to you, wouldn't they leave some grapes for gleaning? But see how Esau has been looted. Their secret treasures searched out. Your allies went with you only to the border. Those at peace with you deceived and defeated you. Those who ate your food set a trap for you, and you couldn't discern it. When that day comes, says Adonai, won't I destroy all the wise men of Edom, leave no discernment on Mount Esau? Your warriors, Taman, will be so distraught that everyone on Mount Esau will be slaughtered. For the violence done to your kinsman, Jacob, shame will cover, will cover you. You will be forever cut off. On that day you stood aside while strangers carried off his treasure. Foreigners entered his gates to cast lots for Jerusalem. You were no different from them. You shouldn't have gloated over your kinsmen on their day of disaster or rejoiced over the people of Judah on their day of destruction. You shouldn't have spoken arrogantly on a day of trouble or entered the gate of my people on their day of calamity. No, you shouldn't have gloated over their suffering on their day of calamity or laid hands on their treasure on their day of calamity. You shouldn't have stood at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives or handed over their survivors on a day of trouble. For the day of Adonai is near for all nations. As you did, it will be done to you. Your dealings will come back on your own head. For just as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so will all the nations drink in turn. Yes, they will drink and gulp it down and be as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be a holy remnant who will escape. And the house of Jacob will repossess their rightful inheritance. The house of Jacob will be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, setting a flame and consuming the stubble, which is the house of Esau. None of the house of Esau will remain, for Adonai has spoken. Those in the Negev will repossess the mountain of Esau. Those in the Shephelah, the lands of the Philistines. They will repossess the field of Ephraim, the field of Shomron, Samaria. And Benjamin will occupy Gilead. Those from this, this army of the people of Israel exiled among the Canaanites as far as away as Sarfat. And the exiles from Jerusalem in Safrad, 
will repossess the cities of the Negev. Then the victorious will ascend Mount Zion to rule over Mount Esau, but the kingship will belong to Adonai. The famous place called Petra, now part of Jordan, was in Edom. Thus in the first few verses of Obadiah we read of you whose homes are caves in the cliffs. This is referring to Petra and all of its surrounds. I've been there. I've taken several of you there. And the size and scope of it takes your breath away. It goes on for miles. Although Edom and Israel were related through Esau and Jacob, there was constant warfare between the two countries. David was the first, or will be the first, Israelite king to conquer Edom. Edom revolted then in the days of King Uram, installing its own king. Years later, Amaziah reconquered Edom, and it wasn't until the days of Ahaz that the country regained its independence. In the 6th century BC, Edom was conquered by the Babylonians. Edom is going to play a major role in the end times, regardless of what its modern name might go by. And it seems clear that a very prominent Edomite will also play a major role in trying to defeat the returning Messiah. Just as it happened at least twice in the past, one of which we're reading about here in 1 Samuel. It may just be that Doeg was the first of this type and shadow. Now, this bears repeating. While on the surface... This is all about King Saul committing personal retribution against Ahimelech, who Saul thought was siding with David. That was really a ruse. Saul was looking for an excuse to abolish the entire priesthood. After all, what possible use could a man who is God's enemy have for a group of men whose job it is to discern God's will, teach it to Saul's people, and carry out God's ritual law. It's always been the ways of men since time immemorial to create false crises or to come up with an excuse to carry out some kind of an act that actually disguises a much broader broader and more sinister design and intent. It's always been so. If Saul was going to defeat God, he'd have to begin by eradicating God's servants. Church, for those who have an ear, pay attention to what I just told you. Inevitably, the greatest danger comes from within, not without. But God being God, He saved a remnant of one, Aviatar. 
Avyatar was Ahimelech's son, likely in line to be the next high priest. Somehow he escaped the slaughter of the priests of Nob and fled to David for protection. I doubt that Avyatar realized it at the time. But what happened at Nob was merely a fulfillment of something that had been prophesied several years earlier. Let's recall that prediction by looking at 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at verses starting in verse 27. 1 Samuel chapter 2, which is in page 300 if you have the complete Jewish Bible. We're going to read verses 27 to 36. So it's 27 to the end. A man of God came to Eli, Eli, told him, Here is what Adonai says, Didn't I reveal myself to your ancestors' clan when they were in Egypt serving as slaves in Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's household? Didn't I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense and wear a ritual vest in my presence? Didn't I assign to your ancestors' clan all the offerings of the people of Israel made by fire? So why are you showing such disrespect for my sacrifices and offerings which I ordered to be made at my dwelling? Why do you show more honor to your sons than to me, making yourselves fat with the choicest parts of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore, Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I did indeed say that your family and your father's family would walk in my presence forever. But now Adonai says, forget it. I respect those who respect me, but despise. But those who despise me will meet with contempt. The day is coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's family so that no one in your family will live to old age. At a time when Israel is prospering, you will see a rival in my dwelling. Never anyone in your family will live to old age. So I won't cut off every one of your men from my altar, because that would make your eyes grow dim, you would waste away. Nevertheless, all of your descendants will die young. Your sign that this will occur will be what happens, will be what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Pincus. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do what I want and what I intend. I will make his family faithful. He will serve in the presence of my anointed one forever. Everyone left in your family will come and prostrate himself before him for a silver coin or a loaf of bread and say, please, won't you give me some work as a priest so I can have a scrap of bread to eat? There's a couple of critical lessons and principles in these passages. The truth of which is now being made manifest in the later chapters of Samuel. First is the principle contained in this second chapter, verse 30. And while it's applied to Eli's descendants, it also applies to all believers in every age. 1 Samuel 2.30 says, Therefore Adonai, the God of Israel, says, I did indeed say that your family and your father's family would walk in my presence forever. 
But now Adonai says, forget it. I respect those who respect me, but those who despise me will meet with contempt. See, the number one requirement to receive God's promised blessings is abiding trust and respect in Him. When that ends, the promised blessings end with it. I cannot say it strongly enough. This is not about belief. Eli's family didn't stop believing in Jehovah, God of Israel, but they did pervert their worship of Him and add sufficient paganism and man-made traditions and personal wants and desires to their lives that eventually God counted it as a lack of trust and respect. Where is that line exactly that we dare not cross over? No man knows. But when a man does cross over it, then expulsion from the kingdom is the divine response. Romans 11.19 So you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True. But so what? They were broken off because of their lack of trust. However, you keep your place only because of your trust. So don't be arrogant. On the contrary, be terrified. The second lesson is found just two verses later, in verse 32. At a time when Israel is prospering, it says, you'll see a rival in my dwelling, and never will anyone in your family live to old age. See, indeed, Eli's family, priestly family, had a rival. There was another high priest, another priestly family in existence, the family of Zadok. Eli and his descendants were of the line of Ithamar, who was one of Aaron's sons. But they weren't supposed to be the high priestly line. Rather, the descendants of Eleazar were to be the high priests. Zadok was of the descendants of Eleazar. Even though Zadok eventually became the high priest... David allowed Aviatar to continue to serve. So there were rival high priests for a while, even though apparently Zadok had more power. This would be remedied when Solomon, who followed David and felt no such loyalty to Aviatar, deposed him. Then only Zadok remained in office. So here we see how the Lord allowed a terrible evil perpetrated by an alliance between the Hebrew, King Saul, and a foreigner, Doeg the Edomite. He allowed this to be committed upon his priesthood. Yet this terrible evil not only punished what was actually a technically illegitimate line of priests but by wiping them all out except for one it now paved the way for the much smaller and less powerful line of Zadok to ascend back to their rightful legitimate place 
And in later chapters, we're going to see David appoint Zadok as high priest to complete this circle. The lesson is this. Just because an institution that claims to be of God and in some manner seems to follow his ways, just because they're divinely allowed to exist and prosper for a long time doesn't mean it's legitimate or it will always prosper. It may just be a tool for the Lord to use to achieve His will, just like Pharaoh was. A religious veneer often hides a false core that will one day be exposed. When Abiatar arrived at David's encampment, With the devastating news, David instantly knew that it was his own lies and deceptions and his lack of concern for the people of Nob, the priests of Nob, that led to their murder. He openly admitted it. He pledged now to care and care for and to guard the only surviving priest from Nob, Aviatar. Not only that, but David now had in his charge, think about this, the sole remaining link to Yehovah, so that along with the ritual vest that carried the precious Urim and Tumim, David now had a means to discern God's will. Let's move on to chapter 23. Chapter 23. Page 324, the complete Jewish Bible. David was told the Philistines are fighting Kelah and plundering the threshing floors. And David consulted Adonai, asking, Should I go and attack these Philistines? And Adonai answered David, Go, attack the Philistines, save Kelah. David's men said to him, Look, we're already afraid here in Judah. How much more than if we go to Keilah to fight the armies of the Philistines? And David consulted Adonai again, and Adonai answered him, Set out, go down to Keilah, because I'm going to hand the Philistines over to you. David and his men went to Keilah. They fought the Philistines. They defeated them in a great slaughter, led away their livestock. Thus David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. When Abiatar, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David in Keilah, he had brought a ritual vest with him. Now, Shaul, on being informed that David had gone to Keilah, had said, God has put him into my hands. He's trapped himself by entering a town with gates and bars. So Shaul summoned all the people to war to go down to Keilah and besiege David and his men. David knew that Shaul was plotting something against him, so he told Abiatar the Kohen, bring the, the ritual vest here. And David said, Adonai, God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul intends to come to Keilah and destroy the city just to get me. Will the men of Keilah turn me over to him? Will Shaul come down as your servant has heard? Adonai, God of Israel, please tell your servant. And Adonai said, he will come down. And then David asked, will the men of Keilah hand me over, hand me and my men over to Saul? And Adonai said, they will hand you over. So David and his men, now about 600, got up, left Keilah, and went wherever they could. It was told Shaul that David had escaped from Keilah, so he called off the expedition. 
David stayed in the desert strongholds remaining in the hills of the Zif desert. Saul kept trying to find him, but God didn't hand him over to him. David saw that, saw that Shaul had mounted another expedition to seek his life, and David was then at Horesh in the Zif desert. Jonathan, Saul's son, set out and went to David at Horesh to encourage him in God. He said to him, Don't be afraid, because my father's forces won't find you. You will be king over Israel. I will be second to you. Saul, my father, knows this too. Then the two of them made a covenant in the presence of Adonai, after which David stayed at Horesh and Jonathan returned home. The people of Ziph came to Saul at Geba and said, David's hiding himself with us in the strongholds at Horesh on uh, Hachilah Hill, south of Yeshmon. So now, king, since you've wanted so much to come down, come down. Our part will be to turn him over to you. Saul said, may Adonai bless you for showing me compassion. Please go and make still more certain exactly where he is and who has seen him there because I've been told he's very tricky. So look closely, find out where all his hiding places are, and then you come back when you're sure. Then I'll go with you. And if he's there in that territory, I'll search till I find him among all the thousands of Judah. They set out and went to Zeph before Saul. But David and his men had gone on to the Ma'on desert in the Arabah, south of Yeshimon. Saul and his men went searching for him. David was told so that he came down to the rock and stayed in the Ma'on desert. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the Ma'on desert. Saul was along one side of the mountain, David and his men along the other. David was hurrying to get away from Saul while Saul and his men were trying to surround David and his men in order to capture them. But then a messenger came to Saul saying, Hurry, come, the Philistines are invading the country. So Saul stopped chasing David and went to fight the Philistines. Therefore, therefore they called that place Selah HaMachlekot, Rock of Divisions. David was probably still someplace in or near an area called the forest or better the woods of Hereth, located in a region of Judah called the Sheflah, right in this area here. This is a long coastal plain that begins more or less at the Mediterranean then heads towards the east until, until you reach the foothill country. Now, scholars have had a difficult time locating this area. In fact, some doubt that this area of woods ever even existed because none was known there for the past several hundred years. But they don't take two things into account. First, the land only prospers and remains fertile when God's people are living there. This, of course, is the spiritual influence. And second, the trees, the woods of Hereth, were intentionally eradicated by men, the fleshly, physical influence. See, once Muslim rule began over that area as early as the 8th century, one of the primary means of taxation to support the Muslim caliphate was a tree tax. Every tree 
on a piece of land had a levy placed on it. Since much of the land was owned by absentee Muslim Muslim landlords who had no interest in the productivity of the land they owned or certainly in contributing to the caliphate's coffers, they ordered all of their trees cut down. No trees, no taxes. Thus, vast tracts of wooded areas disappeared all throughout the Holy Land. Okay. This, of course, hastened soil erosion. And before long, the Holy Land was as denuded of its vegetation as is modern-day Haiti. They couldn't grow any but the poorest of crops because the exposed topsoil was then blown away in the seasonal dry eastern winds. In a couple of decades, the land became useless. It was either swamps or desert, and it remained that way until the Jews returned. They reforested the land, and they turned it into the beautiful place that we can visit today. David received word that the Philistines were attacking Kelah, which isn't terribly far from Ashkelon and Ashdod. They were plundering, he was told, the threshing floors. Now the place of Kelah is well known. It's the modern day town of Kirbet Kelah, located about eight miles southwest, southwest of Hebron. Now technically Kelah was part of Judah. However, at this time it was un, under Philistine military control. Now the city of Kelah was a walled city. But notice that this isn't what was being attacked. The threshing floors were the target of the Philistines, not the city, not its inhabitants. See, the threshing floors were always outside the cities and towns next to the fields. The Philistines weren't interested in land acquisition and empire building. They also weren't mindless barbarians that rather enjoyed destroying things and creating mayhem just for the fun of it. Rather, their strategy was was to lord over areas in order to control commerce and thus benefit economically. They were coming to Kalah to confiscate, confiscate the grain. That means that the harvesting was nearly complete. The threshold process, the threshing process had begun. See, it would have been pointless for them to attack while the grain was immature and still in the fields on the stock. They wanted the grain because then they could capture it without doing much work, sell it to both their own people and abroad. The Philistines were in the shipping business. They needed a steady supply of goods and commodities. Plundering it from their neighbors, then turning around and selling it, was the common method of that era. To destroy cities and villages and fields would have been totally counterproductive. Verse 2, chapter 23, seems straightforward enough, but there's a little hidden gem in the first three words. It says, David consulted Yehovah. Your Bibles may say Adonai. 
Now immediately thereafter, the question asked of God is recorded for us. And David's question as he consults Yehovah is, should I go and attack these Philistines at Kelah? To inquire of God is most often to employ those two ritual stones called the Urim and Tumim. These were stored inside a, a special pocket sewn into the priest's, the high priest's ritual vest. And sure enough, we're told in verse 6 that Avyatar had brought his father's, Ahimelech's, ritual vest with him when he came to David. One giveaway in Scripture to help determine if an inquiry involves the Urim and Tumim is the format of the question. It has to be binary. In other words, only two answers are possible. Yes or no, go, stay, left, right, up, down, so on. One or the other. The answer God gave by means of the two ritual stones was yes. David should go and attack the Philistines who were plundering the grain from Kelah. David had no doubts about this. But the refugees from Saul who were with him in the woods of Heret weren't in that same frame of mind. Here they were trying to elude Saul and stay alive and now they're supposed to become a militia and go and fight the Philistines? For what? Why? Well, the resistance of these people sends David back to Abiatar and the two stones, and so he asks the Lord a similar question about what the result of this excursion would be, because the people are afraid. God says that he's going to hand the Philistines over to, to David. Now let me caution you that the words with quotes around it in our Bibles that makes it appear that these are the words that Jehovah spoke to David are in fact what an editor assumed and wrote. Okay, See, the effect and meaning of the Lord's response to David is entirely true. But remember, the inquiry is happening through the Urim and Tumim stones. These stones don't speak. And there is no evidence that God spoke to David face to face and audibly. Rather, the stones answered a question that were structured to give a yes or a no answer, probably by one glowing and the other not, or something like that. Maybe it was like lots, where they went into a bag and one was picked. So David must have asked something to the effect of will we win with the answer being yes. David went back to the men. They followed him to Kalah where a great victory was achieved. <clears throat> it's interesting, I think, that livestock of the Philistines is mentioned. And a good question would be, why is Philistine livestock present at this battle, present at this battle. The answer is that probably they brought the animals to graze in the fields that had already been harvested. We have to not so much picture the Philistines 
that came to Kalah as a hardened army coming to fight a war, but rather an armed contingent of men simply arriving in a show of force to confiscate the grain over a several day period of time and during that time to let their cattle graze and fatten up on the leftovers. I suspect there was a mixture of Philistine soldiers to more or less act as guards and intimidators oversee a large contingent of Philistine civilian workers to gather up the confiscated grain and prepare it for shipment. There is also a result of this episode that, although not spoken, would have been well understood. David acted as a king. He led the people into battle. They rescued a town of fellow Judahites from the enemy. Verse 7 says that King Saul got word about Aviatar fleeing to David and David leading some men to rescue Kalah. And Saul's response was, Oh good, this affords me a good opportunity to capture David. Because David would have been trapped inside a walled city. But there's even more here. This delusional king, we talked about this several minutes ago, actually believed that the God of Israel was handing David over to him. More literally, verse 7 has Saul saying, God has alienated him, meaning David, from himself and put him into my hand. What chutzpah! Saul thinks the Lord has rejected his own anointed king in favor of the anti-king. From Saul's viewpoint, all he had to do was send a sizable battalion of troops, surround the city, and demand that David be handed over. They probably wouldn't even have to attack it. Rather, they'd just wait till the city folks ran out of food or water or both, and so time was on Saul's side. For Saul, that David would be trapped inside Kalah, even that was just sufficient for now. Sooner or later, David would have no choice but to surrender. David figured that Saul was going to do something because news of David rescuing Kalah and saving their food supply would have spread like wildfire. So David, from inside the walled city of Kalah, summons Aviatar and has him consult the Urim and Tumim with a couple of yes-no questions. First question was if King Saul would bring troops and try to capture David there. God's answer through the ritual stones was yes. The second question was if when Saul and his troops showed up, would the people of Calah turn David over to Saul? God's answer was also yes. With that information, David gathers up his men, now numbering about 600, and they leave Kalah. I wonder how David must have felt knowing that the citizens of Kalah would so readily give David up to Saul after he had risked his own life, lives of 600 men, to rescue them. 
how quickly the people who benefited from David's selfless act on their behalf were ready to turn their backs on him. But is this not typical of the way that both the type of Messiah, David, and the actual Messiah, Yeshua, would be treated by the very people that should have rallied around them in gratitude and love. David and his 600 flee to the great expanse of the wilderness now that is the Judean desert. We'll follow him there next week.